This is the Recurring Wellness Podcast, diving into the world of health, wellness, and holistic healing. I'm your host, Taylor Patterson. This show is for discussion purposes only and not intended to be medical advice. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about nutrition, and nutrition to me is sort of the gateway to longevity. And while there's so many other habits and stuff to adopt a better life, I find nutrition really is sort of the foundation of wellness. That's in my opinion. Anyways, today, though, we're going to talk about nutrition for a specific reason. This show today is about nutrition for mental health. And joining me today is Angela McGill, registered holistic nutritionist, founder of Nutrition with Angela. How are you today, Angela? I'm great. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited. We sort of uh, made a connection on Facebook and started chatting and uh, and I'm definitely excited to have you on here to talk all about mental health and nutrition and that connection. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I, like you mentioned, I'm a registered holistic nutritionist. I studied at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition. And when I was in school, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the degree. I honestly had no idea. I was doing it for my own health and well-being. I know I mentioned just this to you, but I struggled with my own mental wellness issues. I suffered from anxiety and depression, all kind of combination with an 18-year eating disorder that I had. So the, all three kind of worked together. And I had gone into talk therapy. I had done group therapy. I had been offered medication, which intuitively didn't feel right to me. So at kind of the end of my rope and sort of the beginning of my health journey, I decided to enroll in school because even though I'd suffered from an eating disorder, you'd think I would have this mentality that food is bad, but I didn't. I was like, there's something because when you deal with an eating disorder, it actually has nothing to do with food at all. And that's where a lot of therapists go wrong when they're trying to deal with an eating disorder because it actually has nothing to do with food. It's all about mental health and mental wellness. And so I was like, intuitively, I was like, there's something in food and I don't know what it is, but it's going to make me better. So I had this calling to go to the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition and get my degree. And through that, I was like, oh, they're really, food can really impact your mood and food can really turn the tie between a mental illness to mental wellness. And then I was still studying and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. My experience should tell me that I should be specializing this, but I'm not sure. And now that we've been two years into lockdown, most people are working from home. Most corporations are talking about mental wellness for their employees, and it's at the forefront of everything that they're talking about in terms of employee health, employee engagement, is their mental health. There's definitely something here in terms of educating the population about how nutrition can impact your mental health, because even though these corporations are talking about mental health, for their employees, they're talking about the standard approaches to mental health. So, you know, they might be offering them better benefits for talk therapy. They might be offering them better drug benefits so they can get medication, but they're missing the one key ingredient when you look at someone from a holistic approach. And that's what do you eat? What you put in your body makes a huge difference to just about everything. And I know you've talked about that with your listeners, but I don't think you've specifically talked about that with respect to mental health which is kind of what I really want to educate people on is food is fantastic. And not only does it impact 
your health, it impacts your mental health. It's really interesting how you can make that connection. And especially, you know, on a day-to-day basis with people that are battling depression, anxiety, chronic stress, things like that, it's going to express itself, you know, physically, it's going to express itself mentally in the workplace. I I got some stats here that I just wanted to go over because I thought this is really interesting. And this is all Canadian. This is off CMHA's website. Approximately one in five people deal with a mental health problem or illness at any given year. Uh, By age 40, 50% of people are thought to either have or have had a mental illness. Eating disorders, which you just talked on, they only affect approximately 1% of the population that we know of, but have the highest mortality rate of any of these mental illnesses. And around 4,000 people die each year by suicide. Now those numbers go up and down and we haven't had any releases for 2021. I don't even know if there's any for 2020. However, uh, really interesting stuff. And then off CBC's website, uh, antidepressant use among Canadians was up 20% in 2020 from the previous year. So drugs like Prozac and Celexa, Paxil, Zoloft, these SSRIs, I'm not going to list all the sort of side effects and risks of antidepressants, but you know, it's probably safe to say it's something that the like North Americans, like Americans too, have developed a general dependency on. And I think that's a bit of an understatement. Nearly a third of older Canadians are taking sleeping pills currently. So, you know, these aren't fully updated numbers, but these really like hit me hard. What, what do you think about this? Well, I'd really like to go back to that point that you made about one in five people in Canada have been experience a diagnosable mental health. So that means it's diagnosed. That doesn't mean that someone's not suffering from something that hasn't, that doesn't fit into that diagnosable category. And if you break that down one in five, that means one in every single household is dealing with a mental health. So that based on those estimates, it suggests that someone, you know, has had or will have, or is currently battling with a mental health issue. And based on what you're also saying is that people living in Canada can experience mental health at any time in their life. So it could be affecting infants, children, youth, adults, seniors. It's basically like no one is immune, no matter where you live, what age or what you do for a living. It's also, I believe the underreporting is definitely something to consider because a lot of people just aren't talking about it. And I know it's become more of a, more of a, popular and more of a talked about thing, mental illness and depression and anxiety and all these things. But what's really interesting to me is how we're tackling it and how we're moving forward to help people deal with it. And your take on it is really cool. There's a nice little connection here too, because I am a huge proponent for gut health, you know, living a holistic lifestyle and nutrition to me is so interesting. And there's so many different angles to it and, and so many different benefits and things you can take away. And, but for you, it's, it's something you've tackled in terms of mental health. And, and I think that's amazing. So when we talk about gut health, what is the connection between the gut and the brain? What your listeners may or may not know, or what people may have heard is the digestive system is actually known as the second brain. The digestive system, apart from your skin is the only major organ system that is exposed to the external world. That also means that the digestive system is the first line of defense against anything harmful entering your body. When we look at stomach acid, for instance, that when you ingest food into your body that's covered in bacteria, that stomach acid can kill any unwanted bacteria. But when your stomach acid is low or depleted, 
that unwanted bacteria can make its way into the intestinal system and lead to an overgrowth of bacteria. And here's a term that I know that you've talked about a lot, which is leaky gut. So that overgrowth of bad bacteria can cause leaky gut. And then we know that leaky gut allows food particles, bacteria, and waste to seep into the bloodstream. So I know you've talked about leaky gut that increases inflammation in the body. It can show up in other places like autoimmune conditions, joint pain and muscle, even allergies. But how can leaky gut impact, affect the brain? It's sort of, it's sort of the same route because it, it, it seeps through the bloodstream, right? So that bad bacteria is seeping through the bloodstream. So it's making its way to other parts of the body. So if I look at the brain specifically, the brain and nervous system are composed of 65% fat, mostly omega-3 and omega-6. The bad bacteria that have taken up residence in your gut that are now spreading through the rest of your body via your bloodstream are also fatty acids. So when the bacteria enters the bloodstream as a result of leaky gut, it can actually start to displace those good fats in the brain. So it's kind of like the, those bad bacteria are taking over. And what, when it displaces the good fats, it actually reduces the brain's production of natural antidepressant hormones. I'm just going to elaborate on why I think the uh, gut is sort of crucial to brain health because you need adequate stomach acid is required for the digestion of proteins. And I know in your line of work, proteins are muscle, but in my line of work, proteins are neurotransmitters. So proteins break down into amino acids that then are the building blocks of our neurotransmitters. And the neurotransmitters in our bodies, for people who aren't familiar, are the chemical messengers that are involved in regulating mood. And most key neurotransmitters that we look at are serotonin, dopamine, and GABA. Low serotonin or dopamine is associated with depression, and low GABA is associated with anxiety. So to make sure you have enough of those neurotransmitters, you need protein. Interesting. So on my end of things, protein builds big muscles and sort of helps us recover from exercise and regenerates tissue, things like that. Your end of things, we're talking about the brain. We're talking about neurotransmitters. This to me is really interesting. I'm so into brain health and I'm so in into optimizing my own brain health and my own brain function. And I've seen it in many friends. I've seen it in many family members. I've seen it just day-to-day -day clients, very common, but just disruptions in moods and disruptions in the brain leading to sometimes long-term issues like anxiety, chronic depression and stress and things like that. So this is really interesting to me. Serotonin is your feel-good neurotransmitter. It's the one that you experience when you're happy. Dopamine is usually the one that is your get up and go neurotransmitter. It's the one that gives you that pep. It's like, oh, I have to wake up in the morning. I have to do stuff. GABA is your natural relaxant. It's almost volume for the body. So it's going to calm you down. And all of those are crucial to have if you want to be able to stabilize your mood. And of course, if you don't have the adequate protein, you're not going to be able to create those. Actually, the first thing that suffers before anything else with lack of protein is your mood. So you're not going to get decreased muscle mass from lack of protein first. Your mood is going to suffer first. Interesting. So that could lead somebody to possibly make some choices that they may not have otherwise made because their mood has changed. 
Yeah, it may may cause them. So their their mood might shift. They might have been going to the gym, you know, four or five days a week. It might be a subtle decrease where they don't have the lack of they have the lack of motivation and don't want to go to the gym anymore, which, you know, might go from three days a week to two to eventually they're just depressed sitting on the couch eating junk food. It, it makes total sense. I have some friends that I'm really close with and they go in cycles when they're training and stuff like for me, obviously it's my job. I try to be as consistent as I can, but even I feel it once in a while, but for some of my friends, they're very cyclical. And if they get into a trend of, you know, having a, like a high carb diet and sort of eating whatever they want it, I notice that their activity levels sort of fall in line and mimic the lifestyle pattern of the diet as well. So when they start eating the eating off, they start acting off and they fall off the routine and things start to snowball a bit. And I got to check in and I be like, Hey, let's, let's get back at it. Like, let's go. And I'm just a buddy. I'm that these aren't my clients. So it's really, it's interesting. So you're saying basically we are what we eat. So if you're eating those carbs and refined sugars and all that, you're going to act like you're eating carbs and refined sugars. And if you're eating more whole foods, you're going to act more like a person who is well in tune with themselves and their mood and their body. I think that sounds about right. When people are making like better decisions or sorry, when people's brains are functioning better, they're making better decisions. And I think that just leads to a happier life in general. Tell me though, what are some key nutritional supports somebody can implement in their diet for good mental wellness? Well, I just, I obviously mentioned protein. So protein is at the top of my list. 100%. The most common and readily available protein source is animal protein. And that's because they are composed of all 22 amino acids, which makes them complete proteins, which their body can then take and reconfigure to form those neurotransmitters. What I recommend with protein is generally three to four ounces of protein at each of your three meals. So that's about a palm size full of protein. If you don't feel like doing the the weight. I do like using that Sorry to interrupt. I do like using that sort of physical reference for people because not everybody likes to count their macros and weigh up their food and things like that. I know as a nutritionist, you probably have more more of a system that you work with. I find with people like that palm and, and full hand size, it does work with people. It sort of helps them. Well, I actually like the palm size too, because if you look at people who are smaller versus people who are larger, their palm size is generally bigger for larger people. So the larger you are, the more protein you need too. So it's proportionate. So I always like to think of it as just proportionate. Perfect. My husband is six, four. He's definitely got a bigger palm size than me and he, he needs more protein than me. So like <laughs> use your palm. I hope he's got a bigger palm than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the meat and why meat is so important, but I also want to encourage specific kinds of meat sources grass-fed, pasture-raised, hormone-free meats and eggs over traditional stockyard. And the reason I really want to promote that is because traditional stockyard-raised beef, chicken, and pork are fed low amino acid grains like corn, right? So the result is a meat that actually is lower in amino acids than those grass-fed, pasture-raised, hormone-free meats. I know it's a long way of saying meats, but technically those are the way cattle and were supposed to be raised and are supposed to be raised. So it's just getting back to the the roots of how farming is supposed to be done. So pasture raised, free range, sorry, free run or pasture is usually the way we look at it, right? For cows and animals like that. And 
the benefits of like grass fed, let's say, let's look at cows, for example, the benefits of grass fed and grass finished versus a cow that's been fed, you know, whatever soybeans and corn and stuff like that. So you're saying that that affects the quality of meat and that affects essentially what we're eating and the nutrients we absorb. Yeah. And it all comes down to because cattle are get their nutrients from the soil. If they're eating the nutrients directly from the soil, which is the grass, they're intaking what they're supposed to intake. Whereas thing, when we look at subpar ingredients like soybeans or corn, who knows how they were raised? Most of them were GMO. And also if we look, cattle are not supposed to be eating those types of grains. They're meant to eat grass. It's just healthier for them. Yeah. And cows have, I believe they're, they're ruminant animals. They have multiple yeah. stomachs to be able to process the, the plants, and grasses and hay and stuff like that. Right. And how does that transition into our, into mental health? It's not lowering their amino acids, right? So the meat is getting enough amino acids from the, the grass versus corn, which is low in amino acid. It's what they eat that's impacting them. It's very much like what we eat impacts us. It's, it's a chain effect. The other thing about why I love to push grass-fed pasture-raised meat is because it's better for the environment. Plus, if you get to know your local farmers, you can get a little extras out of it. Like my farmer will sometimes throw in a dozen eggs when I do a big order. Yeah, and I, I find it tastes better. I definitely feel better. And things like like eggs, if you get pastured eggs, the color is amazing. The, the, the flavor, like the taste of the yolk is unbelievable. And that's where we're getting a lot of those good fats, right? Yeah. You're also getting, you're also getting something else that you're not aware of from the eggs, which is vitamin D because those chickens are being raised outside. They're, they're being exposed to the sun. Whereas you looked up, look at pen cooped up chickens, they're getting the vitamin D. So it's not transferring into the egg, which is then transferring into you. Interesting. I actually didn't, I didn't even think of it that way. Like I'm such a proponent for natural sunlight for ourselves, but food we eat can actually, we can absorb vitamin D from that as well. Yeah. And eggs is one of the key ones, especially the yolk. And what other foods do you recommend for, for brain health? Good quality fats. So if we think of protein that creates the neurotransmitters, I like to think of healthy fats as keeping them safe. I've mentioned before that the brain is approximately 65% fat. And to fuel your mood, you need to feed your brain with healthy fats, in particular, omega-3. To get a little bit scientific, omega-3 is an MAO inhibitor, meaning it slows down the MAO enzymes that destroy neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. It keeps them safe. And omega-3, as mentioned, it can be found in, in eggs, fish, chia seeds, flax seeds, and walnuts. Also, a really good thing about omega-3 is it helps balance out the abundance of omega-6 that is found in the standard North American fast slash fried food diet. Well, omega-6 are not necessarily a problem on its own. It's the abundance that we're consuming, and it's also the abundance we're consuming in the ratio to omega-3. So the rate of depression among individuals correlates directly to the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. So the more omega-3, the better your mood. The more omega-6, the worse your mood. So a proper, if we're looking at a proper ratio, we really want a one to three. So one omega-6 to every three omega-6. 
And if we look at the standard North American diet, I can guarantee you most people are probably at a nine ratio of omega-6 to maybe one omega-3. So the ratio is flipped. I've noticed that in my research on seed oils, vegetable oils, and sort of industrial fats. And it's, it's alarming. And it's also alarming what it can do to your brain. You know, we, I talked a little bit about inflammation and things like that, but there's some interesting stuff basically uh, that about good and bad fats. I mean, the brain six, you just said it's 65% fat. So a fuel for the brain is fats, correct? Yeah, exactly. Fuel for the brain. And I mean, omega-3 is the most prominent one that I would, I would push to anyone, but I mean, another important fact that most people disregard is saturated fats, which are super yummy when you think about like butter and coconut oil, and they actually support the function of omega-3. So they'll reduce the ill effects of omega-6. They're great to add into an omega-3 rich diet because they'll support it and kind of, you know, get rid of the problems with omega-6. So you said like one to one or no, sorry, three to one for omega-3, right? Is sort of, yeah. 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 And in a standard diet, we're looking anywhere from like nine to one, even more sometimes, right? Yeah, it's, it's actually, yeah. So you want one omega-6 to three omega-3s. Yeah. And when I look at it like a standard North American diet, it's probably nine omega-6 to one omega-3. And you mentioned fish and eggs and flax seeds, chia seeds, these walnuts, I believe you said, very good, high omega-3. I'm a big fan of animal foods. I'm a huge fan of animal foods. In fact, I, I do go through cyclical, cyclical carnivore diets just to, to help myself increase my metabolic rate and sort of reduce toxins in the gut, things like that. I actually find I have really good brain health with that. However, I love vegetables and I always, and I do eat vegetables. So I'm not anti vegetable. I know a lot of people might be thinking that. What do you recommend in terms of talking about plants? Is there, are there certain plants, fruits, vegetables you recommend people eat? I actually don't discriminate against fruits and vegetables. Vegetables have the benefit of being a carb that will not increase your blood sugar. So that's one benefit that I look at with vegetables, but I won't discriminate against someone eating fruits or vegetables as long as they're getting them because the vitamins and minerals that you obtain from fruits and vegetables are necessary for the conversion of neurotransmitters. You can have the protein, but if you don't have the vitamins and minerals, you won't, the body will not convert that protein into those neurotransmitters. So if I look at the amino acid tryptophan, for instance, it's not going to be converted to serotonin without the aid of calcium, magnesium, vitamin D and vitamin B. And the best way to get all of those combined is from produce. So if we look at a vegetable, for instance, like carrots, carrots contain calcium, magnesium and B6. So that so, alone is, is helping you do that conversion. So this leads me to a phrase that I've adopted that I like to use with my clients sometimes. Instead of saying you are what you eat, it's more like you are what you absorb. So if you're not getting the right nutrients and vitamins and all that, you may not be absorbing these amino acids and you may not be using them correctly. Correct. Like I said, I, I love vegetables. I love fruits of all kinds. And it sounds like you're, you're a proponent of whole foods and sort of a balanced diet. Yeah. I mean, it's really not that complicated. I mean, if I break it down for brain health, we're looking at proteins, healthy fats and fruits and vegetables. So yeah, whole foods, anything found in nature, if it ran, if it swam, if it grew in the ground, eat it. 
as long as it doesn't come in a package with 15 ingredients you can't pronounce, it's most likely good for you. With a balanced diet, generally people will be okay. But there are occasions and more times than not, maybe with somebody that's suffering from mental health where they might require supplementation. What are like some supplements you recommend when it comes to people improving their mental wellness? Yeah. So, I mean, when we look at supplementation in the, I like to look at supplementation in the short term, because if your diet has been so lacking for so long, it's going to take a while just from food alone to get your digestive tract working optimally. So it, it's working so that your body can actually absorb and convert everything it needs, right? That takes time. Adding supplements in the short term is definitely something that I recommend for people. So one of the key ones, and some of these are not just short-term, some of them can be long-term. Like if I look at magnesium, magnesium due to our depleted soil, magnesium is not actually readily available in foodstuffs as it used to be. Magnesium, why I recommend supplementing with magnesium long-term is it's quickly depleted during times of stress, which could be acute or chronic illness, whether it's emotional stress or physical stress. And magnesium is also depleted with consumption of alcohol and sugar. Basically the first thing to go out of your body, if anything goes wrong, seems to be magnesium. And magnesium is a natural relaxant. So low levels of magnesium are actually a marker for anxiety right? Because you've lost that mineral that's giving you that natural relaxant state. The other reason I love magnesium is because it's a natural laxative. So it's going to help your digestive tract, right? It's going to help the body clean out all of the waste. Um, is there a certain, sorry, is there a certain type of magnesium you recommend? I find I regularly use magnesium citrate or magnesium bisglycinate. Magnesium citrate definitely has more of the laxative effect. I believe it, it draws water to the small intestine, uh, but I, I do like magnesium is the one supplement that I don't cycle. I actually pretty much take magnesium on a regular basis. I find, maybe I'm just stressing myself out too much, but <laughs> I, I feel like I need it. I really do need it. But well, yeah. one, the good thing about magnesium is it's not toxic, right? So you can, the worst case that's going to happen if you take too much magnesium is you're going to get diarrhea. That's the worst that's going to happen. So in which case you just pare back how much you're taking. But in terms of forms of magnesium, I personally really like magnesium glycinate, which is a cross between magnesium and the amino acid glycine. It's gentler on the stomach and it's also great for sleep. So generally people with anxiety or even uh, serotonin deficiency will have trouble sleeping. So adding that magnesium right before bed will help them sleep. Magnesium citrate is great for people with constipation. That's where I would use the citrate is for constipation. What other supplements do you recommend? Vitamin D. So much vitamin D. I mean, if you want to read about the wonderful benefits of vitamin D, Megan Telpner, she's a Toronto-based nutritionist. Her and her husband, Josh, created this website called thevitamindhub.com, which actually lists all the various benefits of vitamin D. Most people think of vitamin D for bone health, but it's so much more than that. It helps control insulin, blood glucose levels. It helps boost your immune system. But when I look at it specifically for brain health, it plays a protective role against oxidative stress, it supports your neurotransmitter synthesis. 
And there is actually a direct correlation between those with seasonal affective disorder and low levels of vitamin D. And unfortunately, so many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I mean, we live in a country that has sun six months out of the year. So six months were really deficient in vitamin D. In fact, this is from directly from Stats Canada. 40% of Canadians are deficient in vitamin D in the winter months. Wow, 40%. Yeah. I would I would even maybe say it could be more. It could be more. But they're looking at when I, when I look at the Stats Canada numbers, they're looking at the standard ranges of vitamin D. So the standard ranges of vitamin D are from 75 to 250 nanomoles per liter when you look at most labs test ranges. But the optimal serum levels for vitamin D needed are 100 to 150 nanomoles per liter. So if you fall between that 75 to 99, you could be considered as having enough vitamin D according to StatsCan. But when I look at it in terms of like disease prevention and mental health, you really want to be over that 100 range. I was actually listening to Dr. Tom O'Brien talk on a Zoom call one day, and he brought up a study that they did. It was at the end of uh, 2020. So it was the first year of, of the pandemic. And they looked at vitamin D levels and they looked at survival rates with the virus. There's a lot of other factors to weigh in, but there is a, a very, very direct proportion of people with high amounts of vitamin D levels. 100% of them survived. And the, mm-hmm. the quadrant, it was four quadrants, the lowest quadrant of vitamin D levels, 100% of them died. And I know you can obviously make correlations from different factors, but a study on vitamin D, that's pretty significant. Yeah. I mean, I tell everyone to get their vitamin D tested on a yearly basis. That would be the minimum I would tell them to get them tested. One, because if you're not supplementing, you want to see where your levels are at. And if you are supplementing, you don't want to over, some people have a tendency to over supplement and vitamin D can be toxic. So you want to make sure you're in that nice, happy range. I know I get mine tested every six months and I'll adjust my supplement dosage based on that. Right now I'm at 2000 IUs per day because we're in the, the middle of winter. In the summer, I might go down to a thousand IUs every other day. Because you get natural sunlight and the yeah. body's absorbing it. Yeah. Any other supplements you recommend? I love B vitamins. B vitamins, I could list a hundred reasons why they're good for just about everything, but B vitamins are really key when it comes to the conversion of neurotransmitters. And when I look at people with depression, I'd really love to supplement them specifically with B9 and B12 because it can help with energy production. Lack of B12 has actually been correlated to not only to depression, but fatigue, anxiety, and even psychosis. Another B vitamin that I love is B6 because it actually modulates your stress response. So it will calm you down. I do recommend taking the Bs in combination with each other because they kind of balance each other out. What foods would somebody get B vitamins from? Oh man, just about anything. Bananas, carrots, berries, avocados. Those are fantastic with B6. They're just, they're in just about everything. But if you're not eating enough fruits and vegetables, and most of us don't, maybe not myself, because I love fruits and vegetables. If you're not getting enough supplementation, supplementation is key. B vitamins are also water soluble. So if you take too much, they're just going to flush out of your system anyway. 
It's not like vitamin D where it stores in your fat and will keep storing. B vitamins will go in and they'll come out just as quickly. And that's important with your entire body when you're looking to balance your your vitamin levels and, and nutrients and stuff like that. If if you're not gonna if you're not gonna supplement and you're not gonna get yourself checked for your vitamin levels, at the very least, eating a diet rich in fruits and vegetables and good animal protein is probably gonna help you at least get those nutrients in, right? For sure. And then one other supplement, and I le- only like to tell people about these supplements because no one talks about them and their natural, their natural supplements that can actually, I don't want to say replace, but in some cases actually can replace medication. So when I look at that, I'm looking at direct amino acid supplementation rather than taking a serotonin reuptake inhibitor for like serotonin production. You can look at something like 5-HTP, which is your precursor to serotonin. Right. And when you say the serotonin reuptake inhibitor, you're talking about SSRIs, exactly. anti- antidepressants. Yeah. Rather than looking at your antidepressants or your medication as a start, and, and you touched on it earlier that they have so many side effects. I mean, the pharmacy alone gives you a three-page document on all of the side effects. You can look at supplementing directly with amino acids to get your neurotransmitter production up right? So that you're kind of bridging that gap. Some of these amino acid supplementations obviously will come with certain side effects. I know 5-HTP can cause drowsiness or fatigue, but none of them are near as grave as suicidal ideation. I mean, the whole, the whole key is to, is to mentally feel better, right? If you think you're low in serotonin, you can start supplementing with 5-HTP. When you're looking at amino acid supplementation, I do recommend that you work with someone who's trained in supplementation, either a nutritionist like myself or a naturopath, because some of these can interact with medications if you're taking them. Someone like myself has access to a natural database where I can look up what Uh, medications counteract with this and also look up specific side effects that they might have. And that's important to know because let's just say you were battling some sort of mental illness, such depression, anxiety, low serotonin, you were, you know, you're just not feeling good. And you go to your doctor, your doctor, the first thing they're going to talk to you about, it's probably not going to be, how's your diet? It's probably not going to be, are you getting the proper vitamins and nutrients and amino acids I mean, they're generally going to just ask you some basic questions. And then probably if you pass the screening, prescribe you some sort of antidepressant, right? Yeah. And and what I'm, what I'm trying to educate people on is that that doesn't necessarily need to be your go-to right away. You can look for alternatives, which might be just as helpful in the short term as that medication, like this amino acid supplementation. And there's amino acid supplementation, like I mentioned 5-HTB for serotonin. If you're potentially low in dopamine and you know, you're low in dopamine because you have the blahs, you are like, I hate my life. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do anything. Feel apathetic. You know, you're low in dopamine and the amino acid supplementation for that would be tyrosine. And then if you're low in GABA, if you're suffering from severe anxiety, if you're nervous all the time, you have nervous energy, you're suffering from insomnia, you can look at supplementing directly with GABA. We promote this coffee called Organo and it's infused with the Ganoderma reishi mushroom. And it actually apparently helps convert glutamate to GABA. So when you're consuming caffeine, obviously it's excited. It's a, it's a stimulant. 
and it can cause the brain to sort of over respond and things like that. But I find when I'm drinking this coffee that I, I'm more mentally focused and I have sort of like this calm energy. So I don't know if that is GABA. Do you think that's what that would be? I mean, from everything you're telling me about that, it takes glutamate and transfers to GABA. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think, it, I think that's what it is, but it, it really is. Uh, it's fantastic. And I love it. Tell me about some foods that are super detrimental for people that are suffering from mental wellness, like fruits and vegetables are great. Meat is great, but like what's happening in this world that so many people are battling mental illness and you and I both know that nutrition is super important. So what is it? I mean, if I could just pick two and I'm picking two based on categories, the first one would be sugar. When I see sugar, I think of this big toxic symbol over top of it. I don't know why. That's what I picture in my head is almost them looking like bricks of cocaine with big toxic symbols over them. That's <laughs> what I picture in my head when I think of sugar. And I'm not completely wrong because even though sugar is delicious, it's one of the most addictive substances on the planet. I mean, if I look at history, it was originally brought to Europe in the 1100s as a precious drug. So it wasn't a food source. It was known as a drug. And why I think sugar is beyond toxic, I'll, I'll just get into a couple points. It, we know it destabilizes your blood sugar. When you destabilize your blood sugar, it can change your mood. Obviously, you've heard the term hangry, but people with low blood sugar can be irritable. They can be anxious, nervous. They'll have cravings, panic, crying, headaches, confusion. I mean, the list just goes on of what you can suffer from with low blood sugar. And if you look at some of these symptoms, they can actually be mistaken for anxiety alone. So it might not be anxiety. It might just be low blood sugar. And then the other thing about sugar is that it gets you into this sort of cyclical state where you're dependent on it because it will actually, when someone's stressed, anxious, or depressed, they'll reach for sugar because it raises your serotonin and your dopamine levels, right? So it puts you into that feel-good state. So you get this great high from the sugar. Not only do I feel great, it's putting my blood sugar up, it's making my neurotransmitters go up, but then obviously it crashes back down just as quickly. So it crashes down your blood sugar and it crashes your serotonin and dopamine levels down. And then you become irritable and cranky again. And then you reach for it again and again and again. So the cycle not only creates issues with blood sugar stabilization, it causes issues with your neurotransmitter production because your body stops making it naturally as it's used to getting it from these outside sources of sugar. That sounds exactly to me like a drug. Yeah. There's almost no difference. Listening to people talk about addiction and how you get that dopamine or serotonin spike and I guess your body doesn't produce, it can't like physically produce as much again to get you there. So you just keep needing more and more. And with sugar, it's so similar because when you get that blood sugar spike and when you get that dopamine in and, and you feel so good eating it for that short period of time and everything crashes down and you may not even, because it happens, sometimes it doesn't happen right away. You may not even think about it, but you just crave it again. And that is, that is a dangerous thing. Yeah. It's funny that you call it, I mean, I, I alluded to the fact that it's one of the most addictive substances on the planet, but it's funny that you call it a drug because in 16th century France, it was actually known as crack because of its addictive potential. 
I, I believe that. I totally believe that. And, and now it's so it's so readily available and in just about everything. And I mean, there's probably 20 different names that sugar comes by if you look under different labels. There's no wonder why packaged food has so much sugar in it. Yes, it enhances flavor, but so do herbs and spices and salts, other things like that, fruits and vegetables. But sugar keeps people coming back, right? Yeah. I think it's safe to say. Yeah. It also and, throws you a double whammy, right? Because we talked about the leaky gut. So sugar feeds that bad bacteria, right? In your gut, which then is when you get more of that bad bacteria, it's going to displace more of those good fats in your brain or lead to other problems like autoimmune conditions because of the bad bacteria or allergies. And you mentioned um, with the brain as well, the connection with sugar. An interesting thing is is type three diabetes, which is now a, a new label and a new condition, but it's actually the onset of Alzheimer's. So essentially, it is it is insulin resistance of the brain, yeah, and that is directly caused by a high refined sugar diet. So it's it, to me, it's almost seeming like you might get through your life not going through, not getting type two diabetes, but eventually it's going to cap up, catch up to you and you're going to have type three diabetes. So I, I do feel like if sugar is not impacting you now, it will eventually catch up to you. My grandfather passed away in 2018 and he battled dementia for probably a year and a half. It might've been up to two years. And it, you know, it really, it, it, it hit a wall about 2016, somewhere around there. And he really took a turn. And, you know, I do know he had a sweet tooth. He really did. And that was one of the things that we, we always, I noticed about him. Wasn't a big drinker. He doesn't, he didn't necessarily eat really, really bad, but he, he just loved his sweets. And it, it makes me wonder. It does make me wonder. You know, it, it, it's very interesting. Um, so you, you did mention there were two things you wanted to touch on. So sugar was number one. What's yeah. the other one? <laughs> Gluten. Obviously uh, the two kind of go hand in hand. I mean, Gluten is found in carbs. And at the end of the day, when you break carbs down, what are they? They're just sugar. Consuming gluten can cause technically the same problems as sugar. But gluten also is a huge irritant and it will irritate and inflame the digestive tract. And I'm going to use the term again. It leads to leaky gut, causing that bad bacteria to enter that bloodstream and then make its way to the brain. That irritation and inflammation that gluten creates in the gut leads to a suboptimal digestive tract. So when you have a suboptimal digestive tract, you're not absorbing the nutrients from food. If you can't digest and absorb food properly, malnutrition sets in. So even though you're eating, you're in the state of malnutrition because you aren't getting those vitamins and minerals that will help you create the neurotransmitters. And maybe you aren't even breaking down protein properly because your digestive tract is so suboptimal. When you work with clients, do generally you just take them off gluten? Yeah. The first two things, those two things, sugar and gluten are what I try and get them off of. Sugar is generally the harder one. Gluten can sometimes be easier. But when you look at the two combined, it's just like this gruesome twosome. Ruins your digestive tract and is highly addictive. So what happens with that? it leads to overeating and then overeating leads to overweight, which causes most people to want to diet. And then whether you're eating those junk foods or you're eating diet foods, you're not getting sufficient nutrients. Cause we know diet foods are just prepackaged foodstuffs that 
I don't think contain any proper nutrition at all. Most of them are low fat, which leads to its own problems on its own. So you just get into the cycle where you're malnourished and not feeding your body any real food. I totally agree. And real food is the key here because commonality with going gluten-free is a trend where people will go and buy gluten-free products that are not healthy by nature. Like for example, and I will admit that when I do go and eat baked goods, I eat gluten-free baked goods because I don't, I don't go near gluten with a 10 foot pole. I actually, I try to make sure everything is gluten-free. I don't even go near traces of it. However, that doesn't mean that gluten-free products are necessarily healthy for you or for your gut or for your brain, because they could contain tons more sugar than a product that just had wheat. Is that not correct too? Yeah, because they're trying to like, it's when you look at low fat, it's the same thing when you look at low fat foods, right? They're replacing that fat with something else. So they replace it with sugar because otherwise it wouldn't taste good. They replace the gluten with something else to make it combine, get that sticky feel that gluten's supposed to have, but also add sugar. So when I ask my clients to come off gluten, it's not to look for gluten-free substitutes that are pre-packaged. It's to look for gluten-free alternatives completely. So if you're into spaghetti, it's replacing that spaghetti noodle with a spaghetti squash or a zucchini noodle. Or if you're looking at gluten-free baked goods, it's not replacing it with gluten-free flour. It's looking at the alternative flours like coconut flour or almond flour or even tapioca. Don't go for the gluten-free label. Go for like actual gluten-free foods. And if you're buying packaged foods, you don't want to know what's in it. You want to be able to read the ingredients and hopefully there's less than, you know, five because you start to get, you start to get a little bogged down with, with products that are, that are just, what, why are they there? Right. When you could be eating real food and making your own food. I, I have a question for you. And this one's for when you work with clients, do you find your clients have a hard time cooking and prepping meals for themselves? Or is that something that they sort of get used to when they work with you? It depends on what level they're at. So some clients can be all over the place. Some clients already know how to cook for themselves. And then some clients, you know, don't even know how to boil water. That's not a joke. I've had that happen. I had someone text me and be like, how do I steam vegetables? Oh, boy. And I was like, oh, boy. Yeah, (laughs) oh, boy, is right. Well, they're out Um, there and they they might be listening. So if you're listening, don't worry. I mean, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, everyone, I mean, everyone has to start somewhere. Part of what I'm teaching them is not only what to eat, but how to prep for themselves, right? Because learning how to cook for yourself gives you more control over what's going in your body, gives you, and and especially when you look at it from a mental health perspective, having control over one situation or another can actually make you feel good on its own. Oh, absolutely. I think maybe that might play into your own mental health as well as, being able to have the tools to live healthier and not be, cause I'm sure a lot of people have a little bit of fear and a little bit of anxiety about having to cook and, and like do healthy things for themselves. And it, it can be daunting maybe for a lot of people like having to say, okay, how do I do this? Cause I'm not, I will personally, I'll admit my wife, Sarah is an incredible cook. She is like, I can't explain to you how good it, at she is. She can just put something together, boom, and it always tastes good. And it's amazing. I didn't have that. I don't have that talent. Uh, I, you know, I try, but I don't. So I help her out. But I think for me, it was took a long time for me to be able to get that confidence to cook for myself 
and make things taste good. Cause I was just eating to be healthy. Not everybody has that. Some people just want like instant gratification. So they'll go and order something. And even if you're ordering something you think is healthy, you don't necessarily know what's in it. Right. Yeah. Cause most of this, they put these labels on it, right. It's all about advertising. They put these labels on it, like healthy or gluten-free or, you know, extra omega three, but it's all just advertising at the end of the day. It's really when you turn it over and look at the ingredients, that's what it, what it is. But yeah, cooking can give you that ability of control, not only control in the kitchen, but control of your life, control of your diet, control of your own health, which is what I really try and push my clients towards because I really want to educate them and basically let them go at the end. Like I'll work with them for three to six months and then say, I've given you all the tools. You, you have all the tools you need to be healthy. Go. Like, I don't ever want to see them again. And we talked about that, you know, being able to give somebody tools to go off on their own. That's the value right there. It's essentially, okay, you came, you came here with an issue. We're now going to solve that issue, give you the tools and you go on, right? And you are happy, happily. And if you ever have any questions or anything, you come back. But generally people, you want to arm them, right? With the tools to be able to, to fend for themselves, so to speak. Yeah. So first and foremost, before anything else, I'm an educator. I'm just an educator of nutrition. And nutrition for mental health, which is really cool. I mean, this is not something that a lot of people are out there focusing on. There's, you know, there's therapy, one-on-one therapy, there's, there's hotlines you can call, there are, there's literature, there's so many things you can do for your mental health, but we both know that there's chemicals in the body that can benefit from eating right. And that's like the, the foundation of helping your brain get better. Yeah. And, and I mean, the beauty of what I'm trying to educate people on is that you can do it now. You actually have the power to change it right now. Like you can decide to go to your fridge and pick something that's going to supply your brain with nutrition and help alleviate any mental woes that you're suffering from. You get to make, you have that power over what you get to choose. You're not relying on getting into some program to get talk therapy. That's going to be three months out. You're not relying to get that appointment with your doctor to get the medication. It's something that you can literally decide to do in the next 20 or 30 seconds. That's pretty empowering. So tell me, Angela, if people out there listening wanted to get in touch with you or follow you, how can they contact you? My website is nutritionwithangela.com or my Instagram page, which is at nutritionwithangela. Those are the two main platforms that I use. I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you one question. What is your favorite meal? Okay. I'm really obsessed right now with spaghetti and meatballs. And obviously we know it's not spaghetti. It's spaghetti squash with a good marinara and some meatballs. Yeah. I do love meatballs and love pasta sauce. And we do, we do love pasta. We do um, once in a while, we'll do a, a cassava pasta, or if we really, like if we really want carbs or we'll just do spaghetti squash or we've done zucchini noodles, things like that. There's so many ways, right? And there's so many real foods that you can be creative with that are going to help you feel better and perform better and maybe cure or get rid of that mental illness that you're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, it can definitely help alleviate anything you're going through. And if you are adding in sugar and gluten, it's going to exasperate anything you're going through. There it is. Sugar and gluten. Goodbye. Couldn't get more simple. You heard it. 
Angela McGill, listen, thanks very much for doing this podcast. I think a lot of people are going to get some really good value out of this. That's it for today. So thanks very much, Angela, and we'll stay in touch. And everybody else, let's keep fighting that good fight. <laughs>